Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. This week, um, believe it or not, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that's uh, a bit controversial in church history. And so it's provoked two kind of theological positions that people have taken over the years and a church as diverse as ours. Um, some of the good fun is that I'm sure that we have people from each position in the chairs. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time. We don't always do this, but when there's something like this, it's appropriate for us to learn those positions and then um, learn what the Bible says about those most importantly. And then I'm going to try and talk you into one. All right, so, you know, just been putting all my cards on the table this morning, and so uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But when it comes to, like, beliefs and, and doctrines and theological statements, we have what we call primary issues and, and what we call secondary issues. And so if you go to our website and you go to the About page and you scroll down, like, there's a list of doctrinal statements that we hold to. These are our primary positions. And so if you read through that list and there's anything on there that you're like, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. I'm going to tell you, you're going to be miserable at Renaissance at some point. It's coming. And so just know that these are our, our closed hand uh, beliefs that we just believe there's no margin for difference on those statements and those issues of theology. But then there's other issues that we don't mention there that we consider um, secondary. And so we can, even in this room, like we have so many different church experiences, right? We can disagree or, or have have different experiences on um, types of baptism or types of communion or what types of worship we prefer. We can even have differing views of, of eschatology, which is the return of Christ. We can disagree with brothers and sisters on what day is the appropriate day for worship. We can argue or and disagree about which expression, um, how church government should be functional in a body. We can talk about what translation of the Bible is is more true to the text, or and, and even how we understand and implement some of the spiritual gifts is an issue of secondary beliefs. And so what we would say is that it's okay to disagree on some of those things. There's room in the kingdom of God. We are going to spend eternity with a lot of people that we thought were wrong about some things, whom they thought we were wrong about some things, as long as we're good on those foundational things. Does that make sense? So my disclaimer is this is a secondary issue. And so if I don't change your mind, it's okay. I love you. Like we live in a time, like who would have thought it's a prophetic statement to be like, I disagree with you and I love you completely and we can still be friends. So can we leave friends this morning? Is that, can we commit that to each other? All right, good. So let's see what all the fuss is about, shall we? Um, all right, so we're going to start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's going to be up on, on the screen for you, or you can turn there on your device, or if you have, um, you know, leather and paper, that's an option too. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let me read this for us to just set the, the tone. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware 
you know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same. God produces each gift in each person. And a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And if you're, you're taking notes or you want to underline something, I might, you know, that verse 7 is kind of the heart of everything that we're going to really dive into today. Let me just read that again. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. But I want to go ahead and read the rest of the context. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a breakdown of more information and more learning about each of those gifts. But I just wanted you to see where that comes from. And today we're going to kind of stop the teaching there in verse 7. But let me just kind of start with some of these positions, right? The first theological position that is derived from this a little bit later in this passage, actually, is something called cessationism. So there is an idea of cessationism using language that actually comes from 1 Corinthians 13, which we will get into. It's the love chapter. But Paul talks about um, when these things happen, these gifts will cease, right? So there's going to be an end to a certain type of gifting. That language is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. And so they combine this with understanding that the biblical canon, which is what we call the 66 books of the Bible, is finished. It's completed. We will never add to another book of the Bible. And so there's this sense of this was for a season and now it's completed. And so what a cessationist would believe is that the gifts that were the apostles walked in and that Jesus talked about, they were alive and well for a specific season that ended when the canon was closed. When the apostolic ministry, those foundational apostles, when that ended, they would say that it's over, and they would also apply that to our current age. They would also say that in chapters 13 and 14 that Paul is saying that the gifts have given way to the ultimate truth of the entirety of God's word and the supremacy and authority of his word and love being greater than all of these things in 1 Corinthians 13 means that the gifts aren't essential any longer for the work of God to continue in the world. And so the definition is cessation is the view that the miracle gifts like tongues and healing and miracles and, and a lot of prophecy and words of knowledge that the end of the apostolic age brought about a cessation of the miracles associated with that age and most cessationists believe that while God can and still does perform miracles today the Holy Spirit no longer uses individuals to perform these miraculous signs. If you're a little bit confused by that, me too. So it's like, you don't believe miracles are still a thing, but you still believe they're a thing. Like, it 
troubling for my brain, right? But we'll get there. So let me tell you why. There's some respectable things of why a cessationist believes cessationist things. So number one, there's this historical element that they're drawing this conclusion from because if you look at our 2,000 years of church history since the apostle, there have been very few concentrated movements of miracles of God being experienced in the church. So if you were to just take a step back and look at church history as a whole, you would be like, where'd those miracles go that the apostles did? Like they don't seem to be prevalent and they don't seem to be a thing and so that is just history and so that supports the argument that they are finished and if this was something that God intended to continue there would be far more testimonies of this supernatural activity through the ages of church history so they kind of have a historical um, experience that supports that position there's also theological reasons scripture says don't add to or take away from all of these things that God has put in the scripture so to keep scriptures as the top authority would be to dismiss anything that competes with that um, reality. And biblical records show that miracles were appointed for specific times and seasons. And even if you do a survey of all of the Bible, you can kind of see Miracles were hot here, kind of um, early with Moses. Then they were kind of hot with Elijah and Elisha. And then they were kind of hot with the early church. And there wasn't a whole lot of other hotness. And that is hundreds of years in between those manifestations of the Spirit, which would be easy to draw a conclusion that it's like, okay, so those things, they really aren't relevant anymore. And even in all of God's history, they just kind of showed up sporadically. So there's theological issues that you can draw from. There's also issues of abuse that also led them to this position. And so the there weren't statements about cessationism very strongly at all until the Reformation. And so the way that we do church is heavily influenced by the reformers of the 17 and 1800s. And so many of the fathers of faith that we draw our theological foundations from were actually cessationists. So we need to be honest about that as well. And so they would say that, um, so there was, you know, the Reformation, Martin Luther was rebuking the, these inconsistencies in the Catholic church. He's reading the Bible, he's applying it to their church practices, and he's saying these things don't add up. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the practice is. Can't we just do what the Bible says? And then they wanted to kill him because of that, because they weren't willing to align their practices under the authority of the scriptures that were, were now available. So part of that, there was miracles being claimed by the Catholic church that were fake. Like they were proved to be frauds. Like there's blood coming out of the Virgin Mary's eyes. Oh wait, that's cherry juice, right? So they were fabricating these experiences that are well documented. So like when you see people and it's like, um, it's a miracle. I saw the face of Jesus in my macaroni. Like those came from a long line of manipulated miracles. And the theologians were going, uh, no, that, that's not it. And so they were correcting those wrongs being done 
historically. Now, cessationists would see abuses in um, extremes of the charismatic movement where a prophetic word might be uttered in a, in a place and it's completely inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. And they would say, see, that prophecy went further than what the scripture says. So we should just throw all of that out because the truth and the authority of the scripture is the ultimate authority and celebrating these gifts or allowing room for them pulls them out goes further than the authority of the scriptures allow and so many go beyond what is written or some of the, some of those expressions they're just flat out weird and people are like no thank you I'm a cessationist so you see some reasons right like and there there's some valid reasons in there so many cessationists though believe the historical miracles, and they do still leave room that miraculous signs can happen if God wants them to happen. They just don't see them as a part of being imparted and empowered by the people of God kind of in the, the modern flow of rhythms of obedience, right? So um, it's also important to say that most cessationists don't hold the extreme view of cessationism, and then the other side doesn't always go to the extreme of the other side as well. So, and I do, I, so I'm just trying to concede some ground to cessationism to say that it's incredibly important. We are, our church experience, our foundations are built on the backs of theologians who would call themselves cessationists. So there's some validity in the claims, right? Now, the other side of that is what we call the continuationist, continuationism. And so continuationism is the belief that all of the spiritual gifts, including the miraculous ones and healings and tongues and miracles, are still in operation today, just as they were in the days of the early church. A continuationist believes that spiritual gifts have continued unabated since the day of Pentecost and that today's church has access to all the spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible. So just as, the, as Jesus instructed his disciples to walk and perform miracles and healing and just as Paul, when Paul was going around preaching and writing all of these letters to the church, he is just assuming, he doesn't say do this, he's saying when you do this. So he's recognizing that these miraculous expressions of gifting were expected in the context of the churches that he was writing to. So he's celebrating it as completely normal. And so when you look at John MacArthur is maybe like the most famous cessationist right now and just is putting out a lot of stuff in response to like charismatic movements on why this goes beyond the authority of scripture. But in, in recent church history, movements like um, the Jesus movement from the 60s and Calvary Chapel a little bit after that and then the Vineyard after that, like those are movements of charismatic gifting that continuationists are being um, heavily influenced by and so the continuation to just say hey nothing ever changed like that's this that that thing that Paul's talking about the gifts they will they'll, they'll cease they'll cease when Jesus comes back that's what it means and so you can apply that to kind of a micro version of well I think it's already stopped because I don't see very much of it but but my experience in all of this is kind of like the can the cessationist argument seems to be pretty reactionary. Like it seems to be in response to an abuse of something. And I feel like the argument just goes too far. I feel like it, uh, it, it assumes a lot of logic, but it doesn't, I, I don't, I haven't seen just 
blatant scripture that says this is what should be accepted. So continuationism, and there's kind of a resurgence of continuationism actually um, as church, as culture evolves. And so I want to I talk about just some things, right? So, you know, in the Bible, sometimes Paul goes, this is me, Paul, not God speaking, right? So I kind of wanted to have that moment, right? Like, this is me, Jason, like, and if you have a different theological position, I love you so much, right? It's totally fine. But let me just kind of tell you some things about what I've experienced that support my position. I can't speak for Chris, even though I know where he stands. He can, I'm sure he's going to tell you. I can't speak for the rest of the leaders on our team. I don't know. I'm just speaking for myself, right? So first, I think it's important to acknowledge that both positions are looking to the inspiration, authority, infallibility, and sufficiency of Scripture as their source, right? It's good faith investigation by both positions, okay? The other thing I would say is I think that there are many from both camps who leave room for the realities of the other to be beyond what they can understand, but they're open to it right? Like there's kind of a, I lean this way. I don't understand that. I prefer that, but I love God. And if he wants to do something different, I'm down. Okay. And then I deeply respect the authority of a couple of former cessationists who changed their position. There's one guy named Jack Deere, and he, he wrote a great book on this. And his he was a cessationist. He was a professor. He was teaching teachings at the seminary consistent with cessationism until he had an experience of his own. And then this is what he said. He said, if you were to lock a brand new Christian in a room with a Bible and tell him to study what the scriptures have to say about healing and miracles, he would never come out of the room a cessationist. There's nothing in the Bible that says this is over. It says when Jesus comes back, it will be over. So if you're just taking the most simplistic exercise of believing the word of God. That's what he said. I thought it was a brilliant quote. Sam Storms is another pastor. We're in Acts 29 church. Sam Storms is pastor of an Acts 29 church in Oklahoma City. And his books that he's written on spiritual gifts are we're using as a bit of a roadmap as we navigate this. Just an incredible man, a long ministry of faithfulness and incredible. And he was the same. He took a cessationist position and was open and changed his position. And so I'm going to come back to something that he says a little bit later. And I don't know if you guys uh, in, in the news this week, um, you guys have heard of Max Lucado, one of the most best-selling Christian authors of all time. He's a pastor, um, teaching pastor, and he, he's been in San Antonio forever as a Church of Christ minister. And just this week, he just re- he's just releasing a new book and started doing interviews this week. And he said, um, let me get this right. He says, as he was reading the chapters of 1 Corinthians, and he came in 1 Corinthians 12, where it says, eagerly desire the greater gifts, he decided to make himself more available to that reality. 64 years old, he's reading 1 Corinthians, and I'm sure he's preached on, read hundreds of times, and he just goes, I need to make myself more open to this desiring the greater gifts thing. And so he's sitting there with the word of God, saying, I'm open and I'm available to whatever you want to do here. And at 64 years of age, he starts praying in tongues for the first time. And that has been a part of his prayer rhythm ever since. 
Like he wasn't trying, he wasn't manipulating, he was, and he wasn't a cessationist per se, but he had just never experienced a demonstration, a manifestation of the miraculous gifts in his life. And he just came and said, now he's sharing his experience. So he's got a book coming out on that as well. And so here's kind of where I think things get a little fuzzy. I, I don't know that it's as much one position or the other. So here's, here's what I think. When we live in such a way that we don't need the gifts or don't believe in the gifts, there will not be any manifestation of the gifts. Right? That's not in the Bible anywhere. That's just my experience. If you don't believe, if you're not open, if you're not willing to make yourself available to a manifestation of the greater gifts, it's going to be really easy for you to be a cessationist. If you're open, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be cool. Right? That's the, the position. And so when we make excuses for what we don't like, when we throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, that makes me nervous. Guess what? The presence of God made everybody nervous. That's why the angels always say, don't be afraid. Because when the presence of God comes, you freak out. Because like, what's happening? Like, that's how you know you're dabbling in the presence of God. I never felt anything like this. When people were experiencing it, rooms were shaken and winds were blowing and people were in awe of what they had just experienced together. I don't feel like that's most people's common experience of church. Are we open to the greater gifts? Are we open to more than we're actually comfortable with? And I think that in reality, the American experience hasn't really needed a strong demonstration of the gifts. We don't need healing because we have medicine and we have doctors. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. You don't go, Jesus, heal me. We don't go, Jesus, provide my daily bread because we're several, you know, just so many generations deep into work for yourself, provide for yourself, make your own way. Like those are inconsistent. Not working is important, but there was an understanding that God is the source. I'm not my own source. And so our way of life, we don't need provision. We go to work. We're on the tail end of this enlightenment age where intellectualism was the most important thing. And so in the last couple hundred years, it's all become about arguments. It's all been about defending a position or sharing a gospel plan of salvation that's smarter than your objections. Like that's how most people have come into the kingdom the last couple hundred of years. And what I just think is that's a unique experience for a very small section of history. Jesus was a part of an Eastern movement that was mind, body, soul, and spirit. It wasn't an intellectual movement. And so now we live in an age where everybody can make up whatever truth they want so there is no truth. So an argument's not gonna cut it anymore. We need an experience that's followed by an explanation that brings truth with it. When Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, he said, this is the kind of the worshipers, the fathers seeking this intersection of spirit and truth. But if we're honest, our personality, our preferences, our experiences, we're biased towards one or the other. Either we like spirit or we like truth by nature. 
and one at the expense of the other is heresy. Spirit and truth is true worship. Everything else falls short. We have to be open to the spirit. Otherwise, we're just trusting arguments, which is never what Jesus said. Never. We don't find it. So spirit and truth, and I agree with Jack Deere, it just seemed that these circumstantial responses to what the scripture, what we're uncomfortable with, like it's just not enough. Now, I, re, I have a high view of scripture, right? So I also believe that any demonstration or expression of the gifts has to submit to the truth of the word of God. So we can't just say, well, God told me. God's not gonna tell you something that's inconsistent with his word. So if you say God told me and you're sure, but the word says something different, I'm sorry, but God didn't tell you. Your flesh got in the way of that. He may have told you something, but go back and wrestle with that because it's gonna be supported by the truth of God's word. It's never gonna compete with it. So feelings don't get to be primary. Well, I feel like, well, my feelings lead me astray. My heart is deceptive, especially to myself. So that's why truth is so important. So feelings can trump what the Bible says. And, and with this God says movement that's associated with a lot of charismatic movements, it's not enough. God says also what his word says and the spirit and truth intersection has to complement each other every single time. Which also means that spiritual gifts are to be submitted to the authority of the leaders of the church. They're also to be submitted to the community that you experience. So when you share something in your community group, that it's like, God said this, and the people that know you and love you and love God and have the same spirit, they're like, I'm not sure that's it. We need to go, let me rethink that. Not about being right, it's about being obedient, right? About being consistent. One more thing about that is that my appreciation for the fullness and my guess, it, I grew up in an Assembly of God church the first 12 years of my life, very much continuationist, right? Like very free, people standing up and shouting and prophetic words and dancing and slaying in the spirit. And like, man, things were moving. And I was a kid going like, what's happening around here? Like, this is awesome and scary. And it's like, you know, and I'm praying at like youth camp. You know, I want the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit. I want to speak in tongues. Never got it, but I was trying, right? I was there and I was experiencing it. And it's like, so anyway, we'll come back to more of my problems later. But so then the youth group was cooler at the Baptist church. So when I was 12, we moved to a very traditional Baptist church that um, cessationist is too, not powerful enough of a word for the lack of demonstration of the Spirit's presence. And there were some beautiful people, but I learned an awful lot about truth in that place. I learned a lot about pastor who had been a missionary to Africa, seeing the power of God's word unlock amazing legacy that was started there. And then I kind of swung back to a more modern contemporary, then back to a traditional. And then anyway, I've been everywhere, man, like Johnny Cash. Like I've been, I can swim in every stream. It's all right. Like I'm not afraid of you. Um, so there's just different experiences, but I will tell you that my appreciation for the fullness and need for the gifts has grown exponentially, exponentially when I started traveling to the nations. So I think some of these arguments are pretty uniquely American, right? Because 
Can I just tell you some things? Where there is extreme poverty, where there are no doctors, where there is war, where there is injustice, where there's no clean water, where there's no gospel presence, there is an openness to the charismata of the Spirit because there's nothing else coming. And when you roll into a village, friends, and they say, man of God, this man has just died. What do you do? You better come with something more than if it's your will, God. And my friend prayed and that brother woke up. No doctor, hundreds of miles down the Amazon River from any other option. Our only hope is the Spirit of God. Spirit of God comes, dead man walks up. When, <laughs> sorry, when they tie you to the center post of the house and they go outside to light it on fire to stop you, from spreading the gospel in the village. You will speak no more of this Jesus in our neighborhood. And he cries out in tongues to the Lord because his life is ending in minutes. And the guy with the lighter gets a call on his cell phone and walks out the door and never comes back. When a viper falls out of the tree in Uganda and bites you while you're preaching to an unreached people group and you shake it off and you keep preaching and the village comes to Jesus. When the gang members surround your church and threaten your people, when you're walking down the sidewalk in Ethiopia, known for its recent terror activity, terrorism activity, and you see a strange object and you walk close and then you notice it's ticking. When you hold an orphan whose mother has just died from HIV because she didn't have the nutrition to support her medicine cocktail. When you stand face to face with a corrupt orphanage director who's lying to your face and sabotaging your adoption, I'm gonna tell you, you need the gift of the spirit to be real. Those are a handful of our friends and things that we've experienced. And there was a long time of my life where I've been like, that's for somebody else. I, could, I couldn't be that, that guy. There's something to be said for stepping into greater gifting when you step out of your comfort zone. When your life is comfortable and it's all what you can control and it's what all you can explain, there's no need for a greater manifestation of the gifts when God is your only hope is when he's at his best. And that's my opinion. That's my story. Let me give you a couple things.
I want to tell you what the Bible says. So there's four words that are mentioned in this passage. It's not going to take very long at all. So the first word is this is just kind of helping us understand what the gifts are for. So the first one is pneumatikos. And there's a Greek word just because it looks cool, right? Like, so that word means spiritual. So spiritual gifts are in fact spiritual. So spiritual gifts are not just what you're naturally good at. They're not just your talent. They're God originated. Only God gets the glory from spiritual gifts. We don't get to share. And it's not us. It's not just, hey, I'm really good at this thing. And so I went, we should give that to God every single day. But the spiritual gifts are a little bit extra. They require the spirit. There's this other word called charisma, which obviously is where we get the, the word charismatic from. And this just means it's a gift of grace. It just means it's the gracious activity of God or that he has bestowed. And so like this doesn't originate with us. We need something beyond ourselves. And it's the grace of God at work in us to allow us to share in the spiritual reality. The other one is um, diakonia and it's ministry. And this just means the purpose of the gifts is to serve and help others. And so the expression of the spiritual gifts is not to go on TV and make a big spectacle. It's not to build a platform. It's not to sell books. It is about ministering to the world. Spiritual gifts are not privileges. They are responsibilities and they are, they exist exclusively to serve and build the church and reach the lost. That's what they're for. And then um, the other word is energema. And I probably said all those wrong because I don't speak Greek. But so energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? You can't sustain a spiritual gift. There's something in it that the fuel comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. So gifts are these concrete operations of divine energy through individual believers. So the definition of a spiritual gift is this, a God-given and therefore gracious capacity to serve the body of Christ. It is a divinely empowered or spiritually energized potential to minister to the body of Christ by communicating the knowledge, power, and love of Jesus, right? That is what it is. Spiritual gifts are concrete disclosures of divine activity and, 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 not, and, and spiritual gifts are the presence of the Spirit himself coming into focus, coming clear, dramatic expressions of doing ministry and demonstrating the love of God. The gifts are God going public among his people saying there's something among us bigger than us that has nothing to do with us. Look at what he can do. And there's three realities of being gifted for God. Number one is manifestation, right? Manifestation, that from that verse seven, if you underline it, it says, a manifestation of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. I think we got slides for these, Zach. Is it? if it's working. So there's a manifestation. I made the slide, so you just never know, right? Um, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And so this manif manifestation, it just means an illumination. It just means light 
coming into a dark place, which just reminds us that it's at God's discretion and with his power. And throughout the passage, he says, through the spirit, the same spirit, the same spirit, the same spirit, the one spirit, just keeps saying the same thing differently. After every gift, he's pointing us back. You're going, this gift is God's gift. This gift is God's gift. It's not your gift. It's God's gift that he's given to you to bless the people. The manifestation just means we see that gift being used. It's light. And then he says this to each person, right? This manifestation of the spirit is given to each person. And so gifts are not the exclusive privilege of elders or pastors or super saints. This assumes that these gifts are for everybody who calls themselves a believer in Jesus. So it's for you. Take it. It's an opportunity to glorify God outside of your own power and capacity. There's a potential that you have to be a part of that. The manifestation coming to each person. And then later Paul talks about it like this, which I absolutely love. He says, to, um, in Romans 12, he talks about use your gift in proportion to your faith. So if you're like, I don't really have a lot of faith, it's fine. You can express a gift with a little bit of faith and it's gonna be a little bit of a manifestation, but it's gonna get bigger. He who's faithful with little will be given much. So don't think you have to be somewhere other than where you are to start. You just gotta be open. He says, don't neglect the gifts when he's teaching Timothy about this gift. He's like, hey, you've been given this. We laid our hands on you. We prayed for you. Like we see God giving you this gift. Use that sucker. Work it out rekindle the gift for some of us it's like we get so knocked down by life and explanations and things like that like we forget that we have this gift that God's given us dust it off and let it go work it out flex on it practice it exercise it try it you'll be glad you did don't compare the strength of your gift to somebody else start where you are and start flexing I want to just talk a, a second about my own working it out. So in 2009, I was in a meeting. Holly called me and she said, uh, I can't see. And I was like, what do you mean you can't see? She said, I, I can't see. Like, I can't focus on my, my screen. Like, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit. Like, I, I just can't see. And she was like heavy into a, a graphics project. So maybe just strained it. Maybe it was just, maybe it's just time to take a break or whatever. So she took a break the rest of the day. Woke up the next morning, still there. We had a good friend who was an eye doctor. She went and saw the doctor. And he said, most people that say they have, uh, she, he said, you have double vision. You, most people say they have double vision. It's not like a true double vision. It's more like a blurred offset kind of vision or something. You have this double vision. I'm gonna send you for an emergency MRI. Um, because the only things that cause this are brain tumors or strokes or MS or no, nothing good on that list and nothing small, right? And um, so another friend, was, we were in a small town at the time, so it was great. We had friends everywhere. And it's like the, we had a surgeon friend, got us into the contrast MRI, got results on a Friday afternoon, which was, was unheard of. And they said, we don't see anything. 
and the doctor, the eye doctor, it's really strange because it's like this, this has happened. Had to go to the neurologist. And uh, so you have a palsy of your sixth cranial nerve, which is usually only caused by these horrible things, but we can't find anything. All these testings, you had blood work done every six weeks for a summer, like, I don't know, 17 vials of blood that they took, something, uh, I mean, just, they were looking for any and everything and, and, and just couldn't find anything. And they said, we don't, we don't know how to explain this and we don't know if it's gonna get better. What did we have? Nothing. What did we start doing? Praying. I mean, we started praying before that. At least, yeah. It didn't take, it was, it was pretty quick to the prayers. Every night, God heal these eyes in Jesus' name. Friends coming over, Lord, heal these eyes in Jesus' name. More friends coming over, pastors from the neighborhood, from the community, Lord, heal these eyes. And we had this moment, it's like, man, the power of God was in the room. And it's like, you're feeling this. My friend's all shaking and praying this, the heavens down. And I'm like, get it, man, get it. Come on, this is gonna happen. And you feel the presence and the power of God in the room. And it's like, can you see? And she's like, no. I'm like, dang it. What? And we kept praying. And one random day, nine months later, she's like, I think I can see. I had to work, I had to flex on it a, a, a little bit. A few years later, I'm preaching like this, and we had a ton of college kids in our church in San Marcos. I'm just preaching right in the middle of the thing. This brother just starts walking down the aisle at me. And I'm like, it's weird, like maybe he's coming to the front row. No, he's coming. He just walks right up here, comes right in my face, and he says this to me I can't see. And I think you're supposed to pray for me. I mean, why couldn't that happen like after the service or like, you know? I'm like, what do you do? I'm like, all right. I had to do a little mini sermon on healing and miracles just to give myself the right perspective, right? And I'm like, we prayed for this dude's eyes. Can you see? I feel different. But I'm not sure I can see. Keep trusting, man. I think your healing's coming. Our worship leader on Christmas Eve played a bunch of wrong notes. And I'm like, very uncharacteristic. I'm like, what, what happened, man? He's like, I can't see. I was like, what do you mean you can't see? He's like, I think my contact's like old or busted or something like that. And I was like, okay. Can I get you some contacts? I mean, like, what do, what do we need to do? Calls the next day after going to the doctor. He said, I found out why I can't see. I have a brain tumor. And it's wrapped around my optic nerve. And it's applying pressure. We're going to do surgery this week. And they're going to try to do it. We pray. Protect his vision, protect his vision, protect his eyes. Has the surgery goes okay, vision seems to come back, three months or so, brain tumor came back twice as big. All the same places, threatening his carotid artery, his optic nerve, and suffocating his pituitary all at the same time. First surgery, didn't get it. Craniotomy, second surgery, year later, it's back. Last Sunday night, 
Holly and I got to go lead worship at his ordination service at First Baptist Katy. Came to MD Anderson seven years ago for treatment. He can see. Praying for God for his vision this whole time. I go to Nicaragua. We're doing shoe distributions. Hundreds of people, 200 people coming in for new shoes. Lord bless you. Anything we can pray for you about? It's like, pray for my family, pray for my grandma, pray for my whatever. This older gentleman walks up to me, sits down, looks me in the eye, and he goes, I can't see. <laughs> I'm like, of course you can't. <laughs> and, I'm, and there's a part of me, guys, that's looking around going, is there anybody else that can pray for somebody to see? Because I feel like I'm mediocre at it at best. But for some reason, and when I, okay, so I, I've just been so discouraged about prayers that didn't work in the moment that they were supposed to, to work. And then when I was preparing, I don't know why I thought about this, but it was like, God, I felt like I was just speaking to me about this going, you got to keep on this eye thing and you need to get ready because this is going to be a thing. So just keep working it out. With whatever proportion of faith that you have, keep working it out. Exercise it. Be courageous enough to go, this is, I'm the only, I've got this. I'm available and I'm open. You may be the one that God sent. And friends, this morning I was talking to one of our friends here who's recovering from an injury, asking about bones that are broken How are you doing? He goes, I can't see. So I think we got a little something here in a minute, right? Is anybody else here that can't see? Like we're gonna have a party in the back as soon as this is over and let's do some praying, right? If there's anybody who's got a gift of healing of eyes, like would you please join me and maybe that's what I've been missing this whole time, but I would love to go for it again if that's all right. You guys all right with that? I just feel like it's the right thing to do. Sorry, that took a minute, but I felt like it was important because what I did not expect this morning was to come in and talk to somebody about broken bones and them say, I can't see. This is the last thing, for the common good. For the common good, guys. So these are given to us for the common good. And I just want to leave us with this. Max Lucado put this quote in his interview. Lord, am I receiving everything you want to give me? And why don't we just get ready to worship, huh? Like, am I receiving everything you want to give me? I'm open. I'm thrilled with what you've given me. And if I receive nothing else, wonderful. But if you have another strength, another gift of hospitality or a gift of teaching, if you're going to strengthen this or that, please, I'm just available. And I get excited to think what a church that's available would get to see happen for the glory of God in their normal rhythms. So friends, can you believe that? Can you receive that? Are you willing to be open to that? Are you willing to step into that? Are you willing to put your faith in Jesus and see that there's something bigger? It doesn't matter where you are. There's a step 
forward and you're starting to feel it as a calling on your life, an invitation to trust him and walk with him and be a part of this, this thing together. I love that Max Lucado was 64 years old and he had a major transformation in the expression of his spiritual maturity. It's never too late to just be like, hey, I'm ready for the next season. I'm ready for the next wave. We, we never graduate from this. This is the, the privilege of our life to live in the availability of the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. Illuminating our church, each and every one of us participating for the common good of us and our community. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.